You know, as we are getting near Thanksgiving, one of the things that I'm thankful about, one of the things, Emily, that I'm going to be putting on my Thanksgiving tree is Emily. (laughs) Um, Who is thankful for our kids director? She... She has done such a wonderful job of putting resources together for our kids and our families during this pandemic. And, you know, through the summer, we had the online live kids worship, and my kids loved it, where we had lessons from our kids' leaders, and we had songs and dancing and all of that. And um, one of the songs that my kids just absolutely loved was a song that um, it was called Isaiah 42.8. Do you guys want me to sing it, or do you just want me to read the lyrics, okay? It was a song, and there were dance moves to it, but I don't remember the dance moves, so I'm not going to do those. But it was a song that said, it was helping our kids memorize this passage of Scripture. It said, Isaiah 42, 8, and then it said, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I will not give my glory to another. And my kids love that song. And they would sing that song all week long. And they, you know, they'd say, I am the Lord. I will not give my glory to another. And then finally, after a couple of days of singing it, my oldest daughter looks at me, and she's really thoughtful and inquisitive. And she says, Dad, I don't understand. Why won't God give his glory to anyone else? That seems kind of mean. <laughs> and, you know, my daughter's not the first person to ask that question. The question of why is God so concerned about His glory? You know, Oprah Winfrey, in a pretty well-known video clip from years ago, she explained how she came to actually question her childhood faith. She explained that when she was 27, 28 years old, she was in a church service, and she said the preacher was charismatic and was preaching an inspiring sermon, and she said, I was just caught up in the beauty of the preacher's words, and the preacher was talking about describing who God was and said that God was eternal and God was omniscient and God was omnipresent and God was great and God was powerful and all these incredible attributes. And she said, I was so enraptured in the moment, but then she explains, the preacher then said, and the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And Oprah said, when I heard that, it did not feel right in my spirit. She said, I believe God is love. And how could a loving God also be jealous? Now, listen, I'm not hating on Oprah this morning. You know, she's giving away far too much free stuff to be giving her, you know, throwing shade on Oprah. I'm also not hating on my daughter either. Like, these are honest questions. How can a loving God also be a jealous God? And why does God not share his glory? And isn't jealousy, doesn't it seem a rather petty emotion for an all-powerful God? You see, we're in a sermon series right now called This Is Our God, where we are looking and studying the attributes of God. And today we're looking at the attribute of God's jealousy. Exodus 20 verse 5, God tells the people of Israel, he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And I hope to show you this afternoon that it is precisely because God is a supremely loving God that He is a jealous God. See, the jealousy of God, I hope to show you, is the direct result of God's love for us. And I believe that God's jealousy is actually good news for us. But in order for us to understand this point, we have to understand what jealousy is. And then we'll get into our scripture text this afternoon. And so, when we think of jealousy... 
when, I, when, you, when you hear the word jealousy in your mind, I imagine your mind probably immediately goes to experiences that make you think of selfishness or distrust or resentment or hostility. Uh, or when we think of jealousy, we think of something that stifles freedom and stifles individuality. Perhaps we think of someone who is possessive or demanding or overbearing or degrading or demeaning. Perhaps you've experienced that kind of jealousy. You're like, dude, I had this high school girlfriend and you don't even know. So when you hear that God is a jealous God, it can be confusing, right? You're like, when I think of jealousy, I think of this relationship. How is God jealous and how is that a good thing? But I want you to see this morning that there is a type of jealousy that is righteous and good. See, psychologists often make a distinction between healthy and unhealthy jealousy. Unhealthy jealousy is something more like envy. Something is missing in your life, and you're insecure about it, so you become jealous of what somebody else has. And you become suspicious of people, you become overbearing, you become manipulative, you become all those things if you're jealous in an unhealthy way. But healthy jealousy, however, is protecting and defending something that you love or that you value that is being threatened. So there's an old episode of The Simpsons, okay, where Lisa says to Homer, the great American philosopher, she says, Dad, stop being so jealous. And Homer Simpson says, I'm not jealous, I'm envious. Jealousy is when you worry someone will take what you have. Envy is when you is wanting what someone else has. He says, I'm not jealous, what I feel is envy. And Lisa takes a dictionary and she looks at it and she goes, he's right. (laughs) Didn't think you were going to be getting, you know, a lesson from Homer Simpson this morning, right? You see, unhealthy jealousy is rooted in insecurity and envy. Healthy jealousy, however, is actually rooted in love. So let's take marriage, for example. Twelve years ago, Rebecca and I stood before a group of people in a church and before God, and we made a marriage covenant with one another. I am hers, and she is mine, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That's the deal we made with one another. I made a vow to Rebecca that I would give my life, my affections, my commitments, even my body to her and to her alone. And she made the same commitment to me. See, I am hers and she is mine. We made a vow to one another that the most, the deepest, most intimate parts of ourselves are reserved for one another and one another only. Now, if I saw my wife talking to a male coworker, or if I saw her after church talking to one of the guys in our church, and I flipped out in a rage and demanded that she never speak to him again, that would be insecure. That would be insecure, possessiveness, unhealthy jealousy. However, if I saw another man trying to romance my wife, woo her, take affections, take her affections off of me and onto himself, then the feeling that would come up with inside of me would be jealousy But it would be a righteous, holy, and good kind of jealousy because no one will take from me, take my wife's romantic affections from me. 
Those are mine and mine alone. She promised those to me, and I promised mine to hers. And the same goes with her. If she saw a woman coming after me and trying to take my affections, she would be justified in her righteous jealousy. See, there's good jealousy, and there's unhealthy jealousy. Another example is, frankly, a lot of our kids right now are just downright addicted to screens. And as a parent, we should be jealous for our kids' development and their childhood. And we want them to develop an imagination and an appreciation for creativity and reading and playing. Therefore, why do we set boundaries? Because we're jealous for our kids' development and for their well-being. And no, none of our children like that right now. They don't like screen time limits. But it is an act that is rooted in love and actually rooted in jealousy for your child's best interest. In 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes to a church in Corinth that had abandoned the truth of the gospel and the ethics of Jesus. They were living in blatant disobedience to the scriptures. They were welcoming false apostles. They were teaching things that were contrary to the message of the gospel. And Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he pleads with them to turn back to God and he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. See, Paul was a good pastor. And he loved this church in Corinth. And when he saw that they, that he, when, and when he saw this church that he loved turning away from what was good and true, he became filled with a godly jealousy. And he wasn't jealous of them for all the fun they were having. You know what I mean? He wasn't like, man, I'm jealous. You guys are sinning and just having a great time. He was jealous for the joy that they were forfeiting because of their disobedience. He was like, I don't want you to live in disobedience. I want you to experience the joy of living in obedience to Jesus. You see, jealousy can be an unrighteous, bad, unhealthy, sinful manifestation of insecurity and envy. But jealousy can also be a manifestation of love and a righteous anger when you see something you love being taken from you or being harmed. And the scriptures show us that God's jealousy is not an unhealthy jealousy, but it's a holy and good and healthy jealousy. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20 this afternoon, and this is where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. It says, Exodus 20 verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying to the people, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, before God gives any of his famous commandments... He reminds the people that he loves them. And he reminds the people, that he, the people of Israel that he has rescued them from the evils of slavery and that he was the one that brought them out of Egypt and provided for them and gave them food and gave them uh, everything they needed. You see, we often, we wrongly view God's commandments as some sort of bargain, don't we? As if God is saying, look, if you obey these 10 things, if you do these things, then I'll bless you, or then I'll love you, then I'll accept you, then I'll welcome you. And we think of the Ten Commandments like it's personnel policy, you know? <laughs> like, all right, I, I got to do what the boss has asked me to do, and then I can remain in good standing. But God reminds the people of Israel here, he says, look, you don't obey the commandments to receive my blessing. I've already blessed you. I've already called you. I've already chosen you. I've already rescued you. I've already redeemed you. I've already provided for you. I've already proven my love and my commitment to you. 
And because I love you, and because I'm committed to your best interests, here is how I want you to live. Here's the commandments. These, uh, the Ten Commandments are far more like wedding vows than they are rules. They are invitations into a relationship, and they are guidelines for how the relationship can flourish. And God is saying that the Israelites will actually experience greater joy with him and greater intimacy with him if they live according to these commandments. And then God says in verse 3, he gives the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to these things or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. God says, I'm not going to share my glory with a bunch of little G gods. You see, God's great desire for our lives is that we have a priority relationship with him. Just as I want, I want first place in my wife's heart, in my wife's heart. And just as I want first place in my wife's heart, even more so, God wants first place in our hearts. And so he says, don't worship other gods. That's adultery, and it damages our relationship. And the Israelites, they hear God say this, and they're so moved by it. And they're like, oh, God, we will worship you. And they promise God that they will obey him and that they'll worship him and him alone. But do they do that? They don't. You guys might know the story. Not long after God says, no other gods before me, and they say, yes, we'll never worship any other gods. Not long after that, they melted down their gold and created a statue of a calf and began worshiping it. And what's so interesting about this, that they're worshiping a golden calf, is that the gold that they melted down, it's actually gold that was given to them by God. When he rescued them out of Egypt, he was like, yeah, take all the gold, go for it as we leave. And what they ended up doing, what the people of Israel did, their idolatry, their breaking of the first commandment when they worshiped the golden calf, they were actually taking God's gifts to them and they were making an idol out of them and worshiping God's gifts rather than God himself. And we're like, I would never worship a, gold, a statue of a golden cow. Maybe not. But don't we all take God's good gifts that he's given us and then turn around and give our allegiance and our worship to those things. Sometimes we worship our jobs. We worship our wealth. We worship our status, our health. We even worship our families sometimes. We place an undue priority and an undue attention and affection on our families rather than God. Often we worship our politics or we worship our skills or our talents. And we give those things priority in our hearts rather than God. And what we do is we put immense pressure on these gifts to satisfy us in a way that only God can. And God says, don't do that. I am a jealous God. I want your affections. I want your praise. I want your worship, your trust, your joy to be for me. Because you will be most satisfied when your joy is in me. And God, he's patient with the Israelites, even though they just completely recklessly disobey him. He forgives them for their idol worship, but he reintroduces his covenant to them, and he reminds them of his desire for their lives. And in Exodus 34, verse 14, he says, for you, I'm telling you again, I love you. 
I brought you out of Egypt, and you shall worship no other God, little g God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. We have a jealous God. That's how he describes himself. And now I want to show you this afternoon why that's good news for us, okay? So the first thing I want you to see is that God is not jealous of you. (laughs) God is jealous for you. When we hear of God being jealous, our initial thought might be, what a petty emotion for an all-powerful God. Sounds more like an egomaniac than a loving God. God, Like, does God not want me to be happy? Does he not want me to have any success? Why is he jealous of me? Why won't God share his glory with me? But what you have to understand is that God's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. What God wants most is to have a relationship with you. He wants to know you, and he wants you to know him. You see, we are his creation, and he knows that it is best for us to have a relationship with our creator. And I want you to hear this. God wants a relationship with you, not for his benefit, but for yours. God doesn't get anything out of a relationship with you. There are no benefits that you give to him that he does not already have. Listen, you can hate God. You can disobey God. You can curse God as much as you want, and it will not damage him or lessen him in any way. He will still be God whether you admit to it or not. And you can praise God all day, and you can obey Him and sing to Him, and it will not strengthen Him or make Him more godly in any way. He is the eternal God with or without you in His his character, His power, His glory, His satisfaction, His completeness will not shift or change because of you. He is not jealous of your affections and your praise because he doesn't need those things to be God. God is not jealous of you, but God is jealous for you because he knows that a relationship with him is all-encompassingly beneficial for you. God created you in his image, and he knows that if you experience fellowship with him, it will be altogether good, altogether enjoyable, and altogether beneficial for you. See, God hasn't, God, Father, Son, Spirit, he exists in three, he is complete in and of himself, and there is enough worship within himself from the Father to the Son, from the Spirit to the Son, from the Son to the Father, to worshiping within himself that he doesn't need your worship but he wants your worship because he knows that's best for you. And when God sees the Israelites worshiping other gods, he wasn't threatened or jealous of a golden statue of a cow. You know? Like God wasn't sitting there jealous of a golden calf because he was insecure. Oh man, that might be a better God than me. Like he, you know, like God is fully secure in himself. He knows who he is. He has the power to do anything he desires. He wasn't jealous of a golden calf. He was jealous for the hearts of the people. Because he knew that if they gave their hearts and their hope to that statue, they would be disappointed. God isn't jealous of anything that you have. He gave it to you. God is jealous for your heart. 
And when he sees you giving your heart and your hopes and your longings and your security to other things, he knows that you are setting yourself up for disappointment. And he is jealous for you to turn to him so that you can experience the fullness of life. So maybe put it like this. Imagine you're the parent of a teenage child and your child starts hanging out with a group of friends at school that you know it's not good for them. And they're becoming a bad influence on your child. They're causing your child to do certain things or act in certain ways or become a certain type of person that you know is not good ultimately for your child. And so you tell your child, look, I don't want you hanging out with that group of friends any longer. I don't want you to spend any more time with them. And the teenager in their kind of teenagery, you know, attitude say, oh, dad, mom, you're just jealous of me because I'm popular. <laughs> and it's like, no, child, I'm not jealous of your popularity. I'm jealous for your heart and for your future and for your well-being. You see, God's not jealous of you or me or any golden statue. He is jealous for us and for our hearts. Second thing I want you to see this afternoon is that jealousy is not the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. And God is anything but indifferent. Mark Rothko, I know a couple weeks ago I talked about uh, a painter, Andrew Wyeth. I'm going to talk about another one of my, famous paint, uh, my favorite painters Mark Rothko was a famous American abstract painter. Um, his work is very distinct. It's very powerful. If you're like, you go to Museum of Modern Art and you see all the abstract, like the Jackson Pollocks, you're like, I just can't get into abstract, you know, modern art. Maybe start with Mark Rothko. His stuff is really, really powerful and it's really beautiful. But in 1958, Mark Rothko was approached by some very wealthy Manhattanites and commissioned to paint a series of murals that would be hanging in a new restaurant on Park Avenue, maybe you've heard of it, called the Four Seasons. At that time, it was the largest commission ever given to an American painter. And so Mark Rothko got to work painting the murals with all this money in hand. He was a rich man now. Well, when the restaurant was nearly complete, they had sort of a soft opening where they invited Rothko to come and have dinner in the restaurant. And I don't know if you ever went to the Four Seasons before it closed. I never did. Um, but I, from what I can gather, it was a pretty fancy place. But Rothko, um, he had grown up very poor. And he was a Russian immigrant. He always viewed his art as something that was to be enjoyed by all people and for the public, not just the elite. And that was the purpose of his paintings, was to offer beauty to the public. And the thought of his paintings being hung in this upscale restaurant, unviewable and unavailable to the common man or to the common woman, it caused him to feel uncomfortable. And he began to feel a jealousy for his paintings. He was like, I don't want my paintings in that kind of place. That's not what they were made for. And so he called the restaurant owner and he famously said, anybody who will eat that kind of food for those kind of prices will never look at a painting of mine. And he returned every penny of the commission that they had paid him. He purchased back his own paintings and donated them to the Tate Modern Museum where now anyone can see them. You see, Mark Rothko, he knew what his paintings were created for because he created them. And there was this moment 
where he became jealous for his paintings because he saw that there was a threat that his paintings would be used in a way that they weren't designed for and that they would be hung in a place that they weren't created for. And so at great cost to himself, he purchased his paintings back and restored them to their original purpose and hung them in a public art gallery. You see, Rothko loved his paintings so much, therefore he was not indifferent when they were being used in a way that they were not designed for. He was jealous for his paintings, and so he bought them back. And our God is our creator. He formed us. He breathed life into us. He made us in his image, and he knows best what we were created for and what we were designed for. And we were not designed to hang on the walls of a sinful, disobedient life. We were made to worship God. We were made to obey God. We were made to know Him and love Him and have a relationship with Him. And God, when He sees us pursuing things that are not in line with His purpose for us, when we worship our jobs, when we put all of our hopes and our expectations on our finances or on our politics or on our accomplishments, or those are good things that we can turn into little gods in our lives, but also when God sees us disobeying his commands and pursuing things that are sin, that are harmful to our souls. He grieves and he becomes jealous for us to be back in a relationship with him. And that's why he sent Jesus. You see, it's because God is a jealous God that he sent his son. When God looked down on our lives, when he looked down on his creation and he saw us walking in darkness, and walking in sin, and loving the things of the world, and giving our trust, and our worship, and our lives to things that cannot satisfy. He sent his son, Jesus, to purchase us back, and to redeem us, and to buy us back, and to restore us to himself. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That passage goes on to say that we are God's workmanship. Just like Mark Rothko created this series of incredible paintings, those were his workmanship. We are God's workmanship, and he knows what we were designed for, and we were not designed to give our hearts to lesser things. We were designed to give our love, our allegiance, our worship, our hope, and our trust to him and him alone. And when we give our trust to him and him alone, that is when we experience the greatest amount of joy, what his son called the abundant life. You see, jealousy is not the opposite of love. Jealousy is the opposite of indifference. 
And aren't you glad that God is not indifferent toward you? Aren't you glad that God is jealous for you? And because of his love for you, he gave his only son to bring you back into his presence to redeem you and to give you a future. This is what Christians call the gospel. That Jesus loves us so much that he is jealous for us, that he will not allow us to remain in our sin, but he offers his own life to purchase us, to redeem us, to buy us back so that he can restore us to our purposes, which is to love and know him. And for anyone who will turn from lesser things and turn to the jealous God of the Bible, the promise of the scripture is that you will experience new life and total joy. So let me pray for you this morning, church, or this afternoon. God, we love you, and we thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that you're a jealous God, and that when you saw us and when you see us pursuing things that we are not designed for, you don't watch indifferently, but you pay the price to purchase us back and to redeem us and restore us and renew us. And we thank you for that, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.